The 10th Collective is an initiative from Revision Path and State of Black Design created to help connect Black designers searching for their next opportunity with the companies that want to hire them. So if you're a Black designer and you're looking for a new job, go to thetenthcollective.com to sign up for free or check out the link in the show notes. We're here to help you find your next big opportunity today. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Now, before we jump into this week's interview, just want to give you another reminder about our annual audience survey. So please go to survey.revisionpath.com and fill it out. It takes you about 10 minutes or so tops. Thank you so much for those of you that have already filled out the survey. That information helps us out in so many ways. And I've mentioned this in some previous episodes, but like it helps us to book guests. It helps us to get sponsors, helps us to really even just have more opportunities to spread Revision Path into, you know, more parts of the world, more parts of the design community, etc. So your feedback for that is super important. Also, your feedback just helps make Revision Path better. I mean, we've been around now for 10 years and over 500 episodes and you don't get there in a vacuum. It, it, that feedback is super important to help us grow, to help us get better, to help us be a better resource for you as a listener, as a designer, as, as whomever that's listening. You know, you're getting something out of this too. So again, go to survey.revisionpath.com. Let us know how you feel. The survey closes on June the 5th. Revision Path is supported by Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They're always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. For 10 years, Revision Path has been dedicated to showcasing black designers and creatives from all over the world. In order to keep bringing you the content that you love, we need your support now more than ever. So if you're in a position to help us grow, here's how you can contribute. Visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and click the donate button there to make a one-time, monthly, or annual donation to help keep Revision Path running strong. Thanks for your support. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Tashika Arsenault-Sutton. Tashika is an educator, image maker, and graphic designer, and is one of the authors of the upcoming book, Black Design in America. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, first I want to say, Maurice, thanks for having me here on Revision Pads. I've been a, a listener for a long time now, so I feel uh, really grateful and honored to be here. My name is Tashika Arsenal Sutton. I'm a designer, design educator. I run a design studio called Black Voice. Um, I also am a researcher, I guess, or a design historian in regards to Black designers, as well as design writer. How has this year been going for you so far? Very busy, but good for the most part. It's been a really, really good 
year on what lots of new projects on the horizon. Exciting and exhausting all at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Any uh, plans for the summer? Yes. Family vacation is one of the plans. I will be attending typographics and I'll be a speaker there. So it's exciting because I've never been to the conference before. And it's kind of strange to have that my first attendance there would be me actually giving a talk. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited about that. I'm going to be teaching, I guess, this summer. I don't normally teach in the summer, but I'm co-running a design residency program at the University of Texas, Austin, where I teach. So I'm looking forward to that as well. And I have a couple of writing projects that I'll be working on over the summer and some design stuff as well. Nice. Sounds like you're going to have a busy summer ahead. Yes, for sure. Now, speaking of of teaching, you are teaching at two universities right now. You're at Vermont College of Fine Arts, and you're at the University of Texas at Austin, which is is pretty new. You've been at VCFA, what, for 10, 11 years now? Yeah, it's been uh, 10 years uh, in April, 10 years. I started there in 2013. It's kind of crazy to think that I've been there that long, actually. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. What has the experience been like there? Wow. The experience at VCFA has been truly amazing and transformative. And I think a lot of it has to do with the amazing faculty that's there that I teach with, who are not only colleagues, but longtime friends now. It has to do with the sort of non-traditional structure of the program. We don't have any classes or any courses. The program is, if you think about it as like a two-year-long independent study. Basically, it's a self-directed program where students decide on what they want to study and what they're interested in. And the faculty is there basically to sort of guide them and offer them resources. But it's a self-directed program. Well, that's really interesting. No classes or courses. No. So you don't have to put any curriculum together. That's that's great. <laughs> <laughs> no. So yeah, it's a, definitely a different experience. So you do work with the students during the re- residency to come up with like a semester plan on what they're going to be working on throughout the semester. So as a faculty, you are there to sort of help guide them and shape that semester plan. But again, it starts with what they're interested in. We meet once a month. Students send their work via email. And then we have an hour conversation through usually Zoom and to sort of talk about the work and sort of reflect on it and, you know, kind of give feedback on how to move forward over the next month. I love how sort of open that is, especially, I think, during this time when, you know, I know we're not out of the pandemic, but certainly, like, I think it's still a time where some schools are trying like hybrid models or things like that. Sounds like the way that it's set up at VCFA, it allows you to really still be able to learn in that type of environment. Yes, I think the one thing that's sort of at the core of the program is, first of all, it's really tailored to working professionals or people, you know, you don't have to quit your job for two years to get an MFA, right? You can Mm -hmm. still work or run your business or whatever it is you're doing and still go to school. And this is something that we've been doing prior to the pandemic. So when the pandemic happened, the one change, not saying that it didn't change the program and how we teach, Mm -hmm. but we were already sort of kind of interfacing in that way. 
Right. So the only thing it stopped was having like the week long residencies that we would have twice a year in person. Then that that programming got moved to to Zoom. But as far as the interaction between the the student and the teacher or we say the student and the advisor, that was already happening. Now, one of the the professors uh, that's also there uh, we've had on the show. Oh, God, that was that was a long time ago. Uh, we had Silas Monroe on the show. This was like, I think episode 85, 86, yeah. something like that. But he's also a, a professor there, I believe. Yeah. So Salas, it's funny you, you brought Salas up. Salas is one of the reasons, that's how I ended up at VCFA actually. Okay. Um, he's one of the founding members of the program. And Salas and I, we overlap by year at CalArts. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, when the program was starting up, he sent me an email and asked me to join the faculty. And I wasn't able to join at the time because of obligations with teaching. But then like the following semester in April of 2013, I was able to come on board as like a visiting, like as a guest, mm-hmm. sort of like a, a preliminary or probo- I wouldn't say probationary period, but just to sort of test to see if it would work out for me and if it would work out for the program. Yeah. So yeah, I, I credit Silas to bringing me in to a community and a program that's, like I said, it's been really transformative, especially the sort of approach to design pedagogy, you know, this openness and not sort of having this one idea of what design is, mm-hmm. that sort of shift and change and morphs, you know, according to the students and the type of work that they're interested in and the type of, you know, the diversity and the faculty and, and, and what we study and research and type of work we're engaged in. So that's the thing that I really like. And it's probably one of the few places that I've worked where I really felt a sense of family with my coworkers. Not that I didn't have that relationship with, with other places, but like there it's, it's really genuine. It's not forced. It's not fake. We actually truly do like and love each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, props to, to Silas for bringing you in, but it sounds like it is a great environment because you've been there for 10 years. Like nobody's yeah. going <laughs> to stay there for 10 years if it's not good. Yeah, no, that's true. I actually you saying that it's technically the longest job I've ever had. Wow. <laughs> I think about it. Yeah. <laughs> now you're also teaching at University of Texas at Austin, which is fairly new. Tell me more about that. Like how's that experience? Wow. It's been great, to be honest. I, I haven't been there that long. I just moved to Austin. So I'm new to Austin and I'm I'm new to, to UT. It's been a really good experience as far as Working in an environment with, I guess, kind of similar to VCFA, where you know you don't feel like there's this sort of one way that the faculty or the program is trying to teach design. It's a little bit more flexible. It's a little bit more nuanced, where students get to sort of dabble in a lot of different areas of design. You know, graphic design, industrial design, interactive design, design history, product design. So it's really sort of flexible in that way. And that's one of the things that sort of drove me in into UT. The program itself um, was revamped around 2017, 2018. Mm-hmm. So the program as it is today, design is the Department of Design and Creative Technology is fairly new in a sense compared to a lot of other programs that are out there. So I think there's something about that sort of newness. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of vulnerability and a mm-hmm. lot of questioning about the direction of the program. So it's kind of exciting to kind of be somewhere where we're constantly sort of thinking about like ways to evolve and improve 
the experience for the students. Yeah. What is your like teaching philosophy? Like I would imagine between the work you've done at VCFA and are currently doing and now with teaching at UT and you've taught at some other places as well. What's yes. your like overall teaching philosophy? Well, one is I try to approach teaching. One of the things that probably on the first day of class, I let my students know that, hey, I'm interested. I'm more interested in what you're interested in learning and what what you're interested in in general out there in the world. Not that I don't have anything to impart or to give to them, but it's less about like me walking into the classroom saying, hey, listen up. I'm the expert here. You all need to learn what I have to offer. Obviously, there is an important exchange that started happening, but I'm not interested in like the hierarchies that traditionally plagues, I think, academia. So that's the first thing is to let my students know, hey, I'm curious about you, who you are as a person and what you're interested in. The other part of my teaching philosophy is, so how do I nurture that, right? How do I sort of give them assignments and pro, uh, yeah, give them projects and things to where to help kind of nurture those interests. So often I give projects and things that are about to help students investigate their community and their environment and their night and their identity. I think it's really important for students to feel a connection to the project brief, to what they're working on, and to figure out how to sort of channel their life's experiences as well as who they are into their projects. There are some practical, you know, exercises that are given to, you know, in topography to talk about kerning and letting and that kind of stuff. But the sort of bigger projects, I really try to figure out how to give assignments to help them sort of explore who they are in their mm-hmm. environment and their community. Also really, you know, I think it's important One of my other goals is to make sure that I'm giving them projects or I'm giving them things to read and write about and to consider about sort of what's going on in the world. You know, I like having sort of discussions and I don't shy away from, I won't say controversial conversations, but I don't like to shy away from like, there's always, you know, a group of students that have a certain perspective about another thing. And then you might have another group that have a different perspective. So I like sort of having those type of conversations so we can learn from each other because so many times that we all are sort of always listening to and engaging in conversation with people who have the same perspective as we do. So I always often give sort of reading assignments or articles or essays or just come up with topics or things that might sort of make some of them feel uncomfortable sometimes where they have to talk about things that they don't know how it's going to be received by their classmates. And also try to give them a sort of sense of agency and responsibility when it comes to like their own learning and not just sort of take everything at face value to question, even question me, right? But obviously with the mutual respect, I guess. I'd love to hear an example of like something you would like cover in class with your students. Sometimes it's it's as simple as I think this project isn't like a, you know, something kind of out of the park. But, you know, I like giving them like one time I, I had students design sort of protest signage. Mm-hmm. Right? So they could approach it with whatever topic, anything that they sort of felt really strongly about, right? Some people really feels really strongly about you should have solar panels on your house. Some people still feel really strongly about abortion, which 
sometimes for me, some of these topics that are still surfacing are, are kind of surprising. And some people feel, you know, strongly about like police rights and, and things like that. So any type of way I can give them some kind of assignment that addresses these issues. Usually I, I try to get them to think about stuff that's relevant in the media, things mm-hmm. that people are on opposite sides are sort of butting heads about just to kind of see how do you handle that into the design context? Even how do you handle as a designer having conversations about, well, if you have a very specific social, you know, our political agenda, what does it mean to do design? Or could you do design for somebody that have a different perspective than you do? So those type of conversations, I think are important to have. Yeah, I totally think that's, that's important. Because, you know, at any point, throughout your design career, you're going to encounter some conflict. I mean, I think we know the goal is to try to not have you know, any sort yeah, of conflicts like with, with clients or, or prospective clients or anything like that. But it's going to happen, you know? I mean, sometimes you'll have a client, you think they're one way and then you start working with them and it's completely different. And, you know, even as you've said about like personal views and such like that, it can get really tricky because the world is not just a, I mean, not to use this as a, as a racial thing, but like, it's not a black and white place. Like there's all sorts of ambiguity and things in there. So the fact that you're able to kind of work out those scenarios and issues with students and like a, a learning environment is really important because then they don't get out there in the real world and have, you know, greater consequences for those sorts of uh, scenarios. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why I do it, because I feel like if we can't have these open discussions and conversation in the academic space, then what's the point of education or school in that environment, right? At least that's, that's how I look at it. Another project that I did when I was working at NC State last year was Um, I tasked my students with doing some design research in their hometown. So if they were from Charlotte, if they were from, I don't know, somewhere in Germany, it didn't really matter where they were from, but they had to do research about design in their particular community, where they were from. Um, It was up to them if they wanted to pick where they live presently or somewhere where they were raised. And I gave them some sort of guidelines or places to start, I would say, because obviously if you said, okay, go research Charlotte, they may not know where to start. Yeah. So I gave them four different areas to to start. So I said, hey, why don't you research the educational institutions, like find out what schools offer design programs and research their faculty, see who's working there, what type of design work or research that they do. Research the history of publications in your particular area. Because I think newspapers and those type of print media is a good place to sort of find like the history of a place, sort of like the pulse, right? Design studios, talk to people there, make a list of all the ones that exist, maybe find out information about ones that used to exist. And I think the last place was printers. If they're like print shops, you know, go talk to those people. So those were the different areas as far as starting points that I gave them to sort of start their research. And then they had to like interview people to help kind of fill in the gaps of trying to to create that sort of storyline because part of what they had to actually design was some kind of like um, information design, but this wasn't about like charts and graphs. It was more like a storytelling or narrative sort of based research project, if you will. And then it was all the data information was sort of collected in this zine that each student sort of designed 
together and got it, you know, professionally printed at the end of the semester. And I think it was a really, a really good project. They learned a lot about design, you know, from where they were from that they didn't know that they probably wouldn't have even thought about if they didn't have this project. And they learned something about themselves. I think for some of them, it was confidence boost. Like if you're from somewhere or you come from an area where, you know, maybe design isn't talked about or there are not a lot of people you see in design that look like you. And I think this this project sort of kind of helped them, yeah, do some research and some discovery in those areas. Now, what do you learn from your students? I mean, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you tell them at the beginning of the courses that you're interested in kind of learning from them. What kind of things do you learn? I learn a lot from them. I think I can admit as a seasoned educator, um, professional, sometimes I go into the classroom with certain types of assumptions or mm-hmm. misconceptions. So lots of times I might have assumptions what I think they might be interested in or what they should be, but then I learn actually what they're actually more interested in. Uh-huh. Um, and that sort of shifts and changed, you know, sometimes. So for instance, you know, a lot of students now, what I'm seeing, it may be something that's trending because of technology, is that this sort of longing for tactile things, this longing to create and print things, you know, um, hmm. lots of times I think that students would be interested in learning about letterpress or screen printing or like these sort of are, are letter set, like letter set is something I love doing letter set exercises with my students. And I really enjoy, you know, being able to talk to them about the history behind these sort of always of printing. But I find like they're really interested in these things and they're not, I mean, you do have some that are like, okay, I'm really, you know, more comfortable in a digital space and that's fine. Again, mm-hmm. I'm not there to try to not nurture what their interests are, but, but I'm also, I feel like I'm also there for, to say, Hey, look over here. You know, there are these other ways of making, you know, and approaching design that's sort of outside of maybe what you think you should be doing. Or, you know, lots of times I feel what I have learned is there are very specific things that sometimes students think, okay, design should be this way or look this way. Right. And mm-hmm. a lot of it has to do with the tools that they're using because everybody's using Adobe suite and everybody's using illustrator or whatever, you know, and I try to tell them like, well, if we're all using the same tools and everything starts to look the same, but why not take your ideas and have your ideas and the content have to dictate what type of tool you use. So a lot of times I learn a lot that I should make assumptions about like technology or different ways in which how they're interested in making or what they actually want to make. You know, sometimes I seem like, oh, they're probably interested in developing an app or, and they do have like those type of interests or they're interested in AI. But mm-hmm. then I find like so many of them, like when it comes to technology, they're like, no, I don't even want to touch that stuff over there. You know, I want to, <laughs> <laughs> I want to get my hands dirty. You know? Yeah. That is so fascinating to hear that students want to do kind of tactile things. I do a lot of different types of judging like throughout the year, like I'll judge design competitions. I look at portfolios and things like that from students. And I have started to see more like actual tactile work, like books or pamphlets or zines or something like that. It's such a stark contrast to 20 years ago. Now, I didn't I didn't go to design school, but I knew people that were in design school at the time that I was also in school. And everybody wanted 
a piece of digital. I guess it's because yeah. it was just coming about at that time. I mean, when I went to college, there, there were computers. I remember vividly like wanting to major. I majored in computer science, computer engineering, and then switching my major over to math because I told my advisor I wanted to learn web design. And he's like, yeah, that's a fad. Like no one's going <laughs> to be into that sort of stuff. And the wow. school that I went to didn't have an arts program, didn't have a design program. So I just like switched over to math. But I knew people that were at the Atlanta College of Art, which existed back then, and the Art Institute of Atlanta. And everybody was just clamoring to try to do something with digital because they were tired of print. They were tired of, Mm -hmm. I guess, I don't want to say they were doing like maybe more traditional things like Letraset or things like that, but everybody wanted to get in on the newness. And now, Mm -hmm. 20 years from then, when technology is everywhere, now students want to get tactile. They want to make stuff. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think the thing that I have to keep in mind is that the way they're growing up and how they're entering these spaces in this world is very different from how I entered it, where I was there prior to computers. And then, you know, Mm -hmm. post. not that, to be honest, I don't have the pay stop experience. I mean, I was in school right at the advent of like Adobe was already there. Photoshop was already there. The Mac computer was already there Mm -hmm. in the early 2000s. So I was sort of a little bit post the you know the sort of desktop publishing area but i think the thing that i forget is that well they're so consumed this is all they know so for them they need a break they are exhausted (laughs) from the screen is what they tell me so they're kind of exhausted from it and so when you show these these other analog processes they like really light up it's really nice and encouraging to see that they still have these interests but again you know there are some that are really interested in the technology. A lot of them are interested in like the 3D, you know, sort of space and Mm -hmm. the digital space, but also the physical space. There's sort of a range, but I think that's what I learned. The more I teach, the the more I learn about like what the sort of dynamics, you know, to what they're interested in. And they have various interests. It is not good to sort of kind of like even put them into a box and and assume what they're interested in because it's a lot of different things that are out there. Nice. I love that. I I love that. (laughs) Students are tired of screens. I'm I'm loving uh, hearing that. (laughs) Now, let's learn more about you. Let's hear your origin story. You're originally from New Orleans. Is that right? Yes. Tell me about what it was like growing up there. Yeah, I grew up in the inner city, now on the earth, now on a you know the outskirts. I grew up in New Orleans. We sort of identify with these with the wards, which are mm-hmm. actually voting wards. So I grew up in the seven ward, New Orleans, which the time now I grew up was predominantly black or all black, maybe. Don't know the statistics on that, but um, very urban inner city. Grew up poor, single, single mom family. I'm the oldest of four four siblings. Had a good childhood. I remember going outside and, and play, making games up <laughs> as we go, just sort of using resources and things that we had around to play different sports or to do different things. My mom was always really supportive in whatever it was I wanted to do. So when I was younger, I wanted to go to law school, actually. I wanted to be an attorney. And so I actually, you know, approached going to college thinking that I was going to go to law school and and practice law. Oh, wow. What interested you about law? 
To be honest, Marisa was the part of it that was probably really superficial, meaning I watched a lot of court shows growing up and (laughs) (laughs) I got sucked into like the drama of the investigations Uh um, and like this like aha moment when like the real person suspect was revealed and like the banter in the court and like the back and forth between the attorney, you know, all the drama. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that seemed exciting because I always felt like I've always had a strong voice, I guess, and a strong personality and perspective in that way. Like I can Mm -hmm. be very argumentative about things that I'm super passionate about. So I just thought I would be a good attorney. Like, why not? I was a good student, usually brought home good grades. So yeah, I could do this law school thing and I can go to law school and, and do that. The other side of it is I also saw law as something that oppressed us as a people Mm. for a long time. And I wanted to understand it better to help us. Okay. Um, So that was the sort of flip kind of flip side of my interest in Ghana law school. But yeah, that faded (laughs) when I I, actually, I mean, I was really up until my last year in college, I was still pursuing going to law school, to be honest. And I was at Loyola, I was an English writing major. And the reason I picked that major was because I was told I went to I can't remember if it was a job fair or a college fair when I was in high school and somebody said, oh, you know, people who do really well in law school, they major in English because of all the writing and research you have to do, whatever. Mm. So that's really how that came about. And I did a lot of reading growing up. So the idea of having like to read and write was kind of made sense, like something I was sort of interested in. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's how that came about was because I wanted to be a good law student, to be honest. So you had been on this path, I mean, to the point where you went to school, you were studying in it, you were getting all the way up to your senior year. Was there like a deciding incident that kind of changed your trajectory? The incident was preparing to take the LSAT. Ah. So it was more like a process. So I want to say the first semester of my senior year, I was preparing to take the LSAT, researching what schools to go to. And all of that became like extremely overwhelming and stressful. But it wasn't like exciting in a way. You know how things could be like really overwhelming, but you're still sort of excited about it. Yeah. If it, you know, you're anxious. But and so then I did some soul search and I was like, well, why do you want to do this? So she like, why do you want to go to law school? And so one of the things that is at the time, it was really hard for me to admit was that I honestly didn't think I was good at anything or I didn't know what I was really good at. And so because I was always sort of a good student, you know, I just kind of looked at it as that way. Like I can go to law school, I'm going to be a good student, and then I'll get a decent job. I have always been a very goal-driven, oriented person. And so for me, it was always just sort of like scratching things off the list, right? So go to school, major in English writing, do well, go to law school, take the LSAT, get a high grade, study, you know, it's just this sort of this constant thing. But when I actually really looked within, I realized that, well, I didn't want to do it for the right reasons. Like you shouldn't choose a career path just because it's like sort of checking off the list. Like I can accomplish this thing, but it's not something that, I mean, I had a genuine interest in the law, but when I look back, yeah, it definitely wasn't the right path for me. So I just remember there was this one day I used to do work study in the library. I just started going online and doing research about like, what do creative people do? 
you know, so like copywriter came about because I'm getting a degree in English, but you know, at the time I didn't feel too confident about my writing skills. So I was like, nah, I don't really want to do that. And then I remember topography kept popping up and this is in a time where, you know, in the early 2000s when they had like a lot of portfolio schools like Miami ad and, mm-hmm. you know, like those type of schools. So, you know, I was doing research and like those type of schools, you know, kept popping up. But then I kept seeing like topography and I'm like, what is topography? I don't even know what that is. So I looked in the school course catalog and I saw like topography one and two. And then it was like graphic design. And I didn't know what any of these, you know, I wasn't aware of any of this stuff or what that meant as far as like a career. And so the more I read and the more I did my research, I was like, oh, this design thing sounds really interesting. So (laughs) the next semester, I just went head first. I signed up to take a type one in a design one class, my, the year, the semester I was supposed to graduate. And then I fell in love with it. And then I pushed my graduation back about a year so I could get a minor and graphic design. And I didn't get like a true minor. I kind of had a relationship with the director of the art department at the time, because throughout my time in college, I took like drawing and painting classes at my elective because I've always had a, an affection for, for art and drawing. So I, you know, talked to her at the time and about getting a, a minor. And so they sort of told me that I, you know, just take like the main classes. I didn't have to take like the foundations and stuff like that. So they sort of like fast tracked me into like design one and, you know, having many classes I could take within a year because Loyola is a private Jesuit liberal university, just Mm -hmm. very expensive. And I was on a scholarship. So like that extra year, you know, I could only go to school like those two extra semesters. So I did that. Yeah, after that year, it was like, okay, I'm a graphic designer now. That's it. That's this is what I want to do. Yeah. That's a really interesting turn. I mean, you were already set to to go along this way, and then you kind of just had another idea, and there you go. Yeah, it wasn't something that was obviously planned out in that way, but I've never looked back. I can't honestly imagine being in any other field than design, to be honest. Yeah. That's really awesome that it sort of came about that way. I'm I'm curious now on what like Tashika the the lawyer would be like if you would have went know. that route. <laughs> I think about it too. I don't know, honestly. I mean, I think there's a way that I would have found my niche. Like I would have found an area of law that would have been good for me. I don't know if I would have how lucrative that would have been. <laughs> Especially if you think about like going to a private undergraduate school and then law school and then student, you know, it's just sort of like the bills and student loans just sort of kind of pile up when you think about it. So, yeah, I don't know. I think I would have found my way, but I think that it definitely wasn't the right path for me. And I think like the sort of activist in me, I would have found whatever, I guess, sort of industry I would have ended up, I think I would have found that sort of angle. But I do remember this one conversation I had with a lady at a job for um, my senior year. And she said that her husband was an attorney and that he had like a studio in there in the attic and he was a painter. And she said that, but once he started like really getting into like law, like he stopped painting as much as he used to. And so I started thinking that like, I never wanted art to not be a part of my life. Mm. So that was like sort of like a reality check where I was, Oh, I don't want to go into law if this is going to, prevent me from being creative or, 
being a maker, I guess. Yeah. So you graduated from Loyola and I know later you went and got your, your MFA from, from Cal Arts. Between then, did you get out in the working world and sort of experience a little bit of, of what it was like to not be a student for a while? Yes, it was a very short time. <laughs> it was exactly a year and four months to date. So yeah, after I graduated, I ended up working as a designer at the Navy, which was oh. such a strange thing <laughs> for me personally to end up uh, working for the military. But yeah, I worked for the Navy Reservist Public Affairs Office and they hired me because they saw my resume that I took topography classes, which is kind of funny when I think about it, because it's like, well, when you go to, you know, you study design, you take topography. Mm -hmm. It wasn't nothing special. <laughs> but anyway, but one of the other reasons they hired me was because they wanted somebody young with fresh ideas. And at the time they were publishing and producing a tabloid newspaper and so they wanted me on board to help transition that newspaper into a magazine, into a monthly magazine. I actually stayed there long enough just to do that, basically. Like we had a few first, I guess half the time I was there, we were publishing the newspaper. Then the second half, we transitioned over into a magazine. And as my first job, I will say that it was a really great learning experience. You know, in school, as far as like print production and that kind of stuff, you don't necessarily learn. So the Navy, they would, you know, I would drive to Panama City to go see the publication on press, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of stuff. So I learned all the print production there. So, yeah, it was a really good experience for me as far as like my first like professional design job. And you were able to get that, I mean, one right out of school because you had this small amount of design experience just from studying and they were like, yeah, we'll go with that. Nowadays, you know, for entry level <laughs> position, they already want you to have three years experience somewhere. So it's good that they kind of took a chance and say, yeah, we'll, we'll move forward and see what you have. Yeah, I will say it was actually a headhunter that followed me or if you like a temp agency, I would say. Yeah. Um, and they put me in contact with the Navy. And I, I think that. They were, because they were producing a publication, it was probably a time crunch. And so I don't know if I was the first person they referred them to. I don't know if they had interviewed a bunch of other people. I have no idea, but I just knew that, oh, they were also impressed that I studied abroad. I'm trying to think of like the things that they said to me during the interview or like that made them, you know, sort of intrigued or want me to come in. They liked that I had spent some time abroad and that I took topography courses, to be honest. Okay. Where did you study abroad? I studied abroad in Prague in the Czech Republic. And it was mainly, it was more of a printmaking study abroad than graphic design. I mean, the graphic design aspect of it was it that there was like this workshop or this class that we took to sort of design posters by hand, like all analog, which was great. Mm -hmm. But it was really for printmaking, like lithography, learning to do aqua tints and that kind of stuff. And it was actually interesting because it was actually with a program that was through NC State. And one of my professors at Loyola at the time was the person who kind of was in charge. I had started that study abroad program. So it was kind of where like last year when I worked at NC State, it was like, oh, like I did a study abroad program at this place and now I'm teaching here. So I don't know. It's just kind of funny how things kind of 
happen that way in life. <laughs> so tell me how your experience was getting your MFA at Cal Arts. That in and of itself was an experience. Cal Arts is tough. I mean, I, I definitely went there knowing that it was going to be difficult, that it wasn't going to be easy. Actually, I was there for three years. I got accepted as a for the three-year track. So, you know, a lot of schools now have a three-year and a two-year track. And normally the three-year track is reserved for students who don't have a traditional graphic design background. And so since my degree wasn't in design, it was in English. And then I had that limited experience, you know, that year and a half working for the Navy. So I actually did three years instead of two. So the first year was, I guess, an adjustment and challenging in and of itself. For one, I was the only Black student there um, Mm. in the graduate and the undergraduate program, which for me was pretty shocking. (laughs) And the reason it was surprising is because I think... To be honest, at the time, I was just starting, like right before grad school and doing like my first year of grad school, I was just starting to notice how there was a lack of visibility of Black people in design or how the design profession didn't seem to, or the lack of diversity that existed. Mm. I Honestly, I don't know why it took that long for me to sort of actually realize that, but it wasn't until I think it was the... 2004 AIGA conference that I realized that where I saw like maybe four or five other black people at the conference. It was in Vancouver. I remember that. And then that's when that was like not long before I actually started school at CalArts. So that experience, and, and that was the thing that I think sort of started me on this kind of trajectory or the path into doing the, the research that I do was, you know, looking around, not seeing anybody like me, you know, not learning anything about anybody who looked like me, whether history class or... So, yeah, that's sort of where it started. And and, and me being at CalArts as a student, sort of asking the question, like talking to faculty or just, you know, saying, even sometimes it was in my work, I was questioning, where are the Black designers? Like, when was the last time CalArts had a Black student in the MFA program? Mm -hmm. You know, like nobody can answer that question or like, you know, can you tell me something about Black people in design history? Nobody can answer that question. Yeah. So it became this thing where, and, and then I know we've done similar sort of uh, scavenger hunts. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like, where the hell are all the Black people, you know? So yeah. anyway, that is where my research started. So because I couldn't find anything, you know, out there that was tangible to sort of hold on to. I just started doing my own research and investigation because I was like, there's nobody who's here to tell me or give me that information. I have to discover it for myself. But I will say the faculty there was all, for the most part, it was, I felt supported, although mm-hmm. it was tough. It was, it was like boot camp going to CalArts, <laughs> you know, it was a really, really tough, intense program, but I did feel encouraged most of the time for the type of projects that I had. And some of them was filled with a lot of emotion and anger and aggression and frustration. And a lot of times that came out. But I will say that they sort of helped me nurture and cultivate my voice. Mm-hmm. And, and they also always encouraged me to be true, to keep that that investigation and that energy and to being inquisitive about like my, you know, design, black design history and culture and identity. 
You know, I, I think it's such a good thing now that it almost feels like I'd say maybe within the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years, perhaps we'll say that, but we've started to see more black design educators out there. And we've also started to see community efforts. I mean, Revision Path is one of them, but we've started to also see community efforts with making sure that black people, and I would say, you know, black and brown, I, I mean, I would, you know, mm-hmm. kind of widen that lens a bit, but we've started to see now more people of color in general being talked about, recognized, showcased, researched as it comes to design. I mean, I would, I don't know if we'll get to a point where there's full equity with regards to that, but I think within the past 10 years, we've seen a lot of, uh, a lot of headway in that direction where we're starting to now see more black students or at least more talk about black designers throughout history. You know what I mean? Yes, I would agree with that. There's definitely some sort of shift. Yeah. I mean, if I'm honest, I'm not seeing it enough or as, as much as I would like to see it. But I'm also aware that things do take time. And especially when you have things that are so systemic and that's a part of, you know, a system that's been there for so long that it's not, you know, it takes a long time to sort of dismantle it. Yeah. Um, if I'm honest, I do believe that it doesn't have to or shouldn't take as long, but I understand it. I try to understand it. I do think that things could happen a lot quicker, but I do realize that there are still certain structures that are there that's way more difficult to to kind of, yeah, to dismantle to where it takes a lot longer. But I, I am happy to have colleagues. I, I didn't think that I would see a day where I could name at least three other black women mm-hmm. that are doing similar, you know, type of work or, or things like that. So I am happy to see that there is a change and yeah, there's a lot of work and way more work that needs to be done. But yeah, I agree. There are, there are more efforts, I guess, and more initiatives that are happening at different places. Yeah. I think with schools, it's just always going to take longer because schools are just such these, large institutions, of course, they get, you know, funds from, you know, different philanthropists and foundations and stuff like that. But I agree with you in that I think the change could be happening a lot quicker. I 100% agree with you there. Yeah, I just think that, you know, one of the things that I liked about UT was they started changing their admissions process. I think there's still more work to be done. Mm -hmm. But they have done away with like the traditional portfolio. And so their admission process is more like a design prompt, right? So a student could, so the design program sort of looks at just that one particular piece that they're doing. And then they submit like a 60 minute video that sort of talks about their process and their ideas alongside the piece that they made for admissions. So I think that that takes a lot of pressure off because you still have so many students that they don't have the resources in their high schools to to submit even a fine arts portfolio, let alone something that's specific to like design where you need like all these different, you need a computer, you need the Adobe software, you know, you need all these digital tools that mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, high schools still don't have those type of resources. So it's nice to see that they're at least trying to sort of change that process a little bit right? yeah, to make it more equitable for students of color to have access to that program. 
Now, along with you being a design educator, um, and you mentioned this a bit earlier, you have your own design studio called Black Voice Design. Tell me more about that. Like, what are some of the projects or other work that you've done through your studio? A lot of projects, uh, I would say first start off with the type of clients that I work with. So most of my clients are educational institutions, you know, like universities, colleges and things like that, nonprofit organizations, as well as kind of start up our small businesses. And I actually like the work that I do within those spaces, the type of projects that I do. Format-wise, most of them are books. I design a lot of books, but I, I don't like to just consider myself a book designer because I do do identity projects and things like that. But a lot of the books that I do design because a lot of my clients have modest budgets, usually I'm given text and that's it. And so- mm-hmm. I think that's why I wear this hat of like an image maker because a lot of projects might call for me to take photos and I'll take, you know, my own photographs, you know, for a particular project or I do my own illustrations and create my own imagery for them. And so that I actually like. I like, you know, that whole process of generating the imagery and doing the typesetting and doing the layout and the design. I I really do enjoy being a part of that process from the beginning to the end. I thought at this point in my career that I would want to sort of be in a more creative director sort of role, but I actually like and still enjoy being hands-on. So some projects that I've worked on in the past that are really kind of dear to my heart is I used to do some work for a nonprofit organization. They're now called A26 New Orleans, but they used to be called Big Class, and Big Class is a nonprofit organization. They started off basically sort of reaching out to the inner city public schools. And so they would have like writing prompts or writing projects for students to engage in after school. And so they would come up with like themes. The students would come up with themes or topics that they wanted to write about. Usually it had to do with their feelings around like their culture and their community. And so what I would do is basically I would come in, talk to the student editorial board, find out what ideas they have about the design and the design process, and basically use that as like information or inspiration and design a book for these individual projects. And so big class would take those books. They would have these readings. They would get people, they had their own like press and their own imprint. And so they would publish and sell the books and then they would just start a feed and go back into the sort of program. And I really like that program because it's not only gets students excited about writing and writing is a form of expression. Writing can be creative, right? Writing, I think, gave them a sense of agency because they get to write, they get to publish, they get to put it out there. You know, mm-hmm. they get to have, you know, open mic and, and spoken words. And so I really love to see the sort of confidence that it gave um, these students that maybe in their school, they may not ever have that type of experience. So for me to provide a platform for them to sort of express themselves through words, through writing, I really did enjoy working with them. But now they're part of this larger more national collection of programs that's like 826 New Orleans. You have 826 Valencia. So 826 sort of exists in a lot of different cities. And my hope is to, there isn't an 826 in Austin. Honestly, have no idea how to even start one. And it's not that I even want to be in charge of one, but I would love to try to figure out how to create 
a rapport with some of the, the schools, some of the public schools here in Austin to try mm-hmm. to get one started here. And then that way, it's something that I would like my students at UT to sort of be involved in that process of helping, you know, those students sort of design and sort of get their work printed and published. You know, I'm a, a big advocate of designers needing to do more writing. A hundred percent. We had at one point in time, kind of design anthology called Recognize that we were doing through Revision Path, where we had designers just like we would give a particular prompt or theme. Like I think the one we did before we shut it down was Reset. I think Reset was the theme. And so based off of that, we wanted people to submit, you know, essays up to 3000 words centered around Reset in whatever way that they wanted to. But it had to be design focused, like design writing. We didn't get great ones. I'll be completely honest. I think a lot of people <laughs> rather wanted to design something than write something. Than and, write something. and even like the first year that we did it, we would get, you know, some pushback from people like, well, you know, why do I have to write something? I'm like, it's an essay. I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> you have no, to write I something know. because that's the, that's the structure of it. I do want to bring it back one day. Like if revision path can get the right funding and all of that. Cause I, I'm still a big proponent and believer of designers. I think need to be they need to know how to write because of yeah, course it I, just helps you get your your ideas out there but it's just so helpful for and I think this probably ties into your research your research focus it ties into your work being part of the canon if you can write down what you did the work you did you know case studies etc if it gets put out there in some way if it gets preserved in some way like you're now part of the canon like one thing with me when I try to find guests for the show it's very hard for me to book a guest when I can't find anything on them. <laughs> like yeah, I can, I can maybe find, <laughs> well, yeah, because I can maybe find a website or there's maybe a blog post or something somewhere, but like I need to be able to see what you've done so I can get a sense of like who you are as a designer, if this is going to be a good fit, that sort of thing. But I say all of that to say that I'm a big, you know, just huge fan of designers being writers. And like, I, write it down, write down your work, show your work. I agree with that too, Maurice. And, and even as a person who I still think I have a very strange or uncomfortable, I think it's a better word, relationship with writing. Um, it's something that with my teaching, I always make sure that there's some writing component in a project for students, whether it's like a reflection to something they read or something they saw. I think it's really important. I see a lot of similarities in the writing in the design process. So for me, it's been a, although it's still a place where I'm super uncomfortable in lots of times, a few years ago, to be honest, I think it was back in 2017 when I was teaching at Southeastern Louisiana University and I had just gotten tenured there. And I didn't realize at the time, not until I was at NC State, during that interview process that up until that point, I had got tenure because of my creative work, because of doing exhibitions and and things like that. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I realized that with the research that I was doing, and then at that time, my research was sort of sporadic, how I was engaged with it. You know, I started this research in graduate school, and then I was sort of engaged with it from time to time when somebody would ask me to give a lecture. And at some point, you know, going back to what you're saying about the importance of like the canon and sort of writing things down, that became a real turning point for me because at that point I wanted to sort of change 
my practice a little bit and have it more focused on writing and publishing because in my mind, I'm like, well, I can continue to do these lectures and talk about this stuff, mm-hmm. but then what, Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, like, what do you, you know, like, what do you do with it? And so I knew at some point I always wanted to write a book about black design history. I knew, you know, even from grad school back at Cutler, that's something I wanted to do. I just, I think not until that point, I became more intentional about it. Yeah. You know, I became, I was like, okay, if I want to sort of shift, not do away with making, not do away with freelance, not do away with that, with that work, but I wanted to be more intentional about like the scholarly part of me, I guess, in that mm-hmm. work and sort of getting it out there and not have it just be through lectures. And I think, you know, oral history and that stuff is valuable. I'm not trying to devalue that at all, but I do think there's something about like having something written and, you know, on a page and printed and sort of documented, right? Yeah. I, mean, I think it's really important for our work and stuff to be documented so it can be passed on. Exactly. I mean, you know, the oral storytelling and, you know, I realize we're saying this on a podcast, but that is, I mean, that is important. But yeah, being able to write it down, pass it on, put it in a book, have it stored somewhere like that is what is really, that is the canon. Like, that's what you end up preserving. Like, Speaking of books, I mean, we're both working on books, (laughs) Um, but like part of the research that I find is like trying to find these writings and trying to find where people have have talked about stuff. And you know what we're doing now? Interviews. We're having to talk to people because we can't find where folks have written stuff down. So to that end about books, as I mentioned that just now, you're working on a book called Black Design in America. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so I'm a co-author of Black Design in America, African-Americans in the African Diaspora and Graphic Design, 19th to 21st century. My co-authors are Silas Monroe and Pierre Boeings. And how this book came about is it's not like a linear <laughs> kind of trajectory or story. So back in 2020, when George Floyd murdered and you had the protests going on and a lot of things were sort of happening online. VCFA has started this sort of virtual programming, right? I believe they contacted me and asked me if I was interested in, you know, doing a lecture or something about my research. And so at the time, I want to say around that time, I can't remember exactly, but I know at some point me, Pierre and Silas had created a Google doc and we just started, started populating it with our, with our research. And some of our uh, focus on our research was slightly different. There was some overlap, but we sort of started this Google Doc. And I think, you know, we started it with the intent of writing a book someday, right? So the idea was that, okay, we want to, you know, have this document populated and start working on the outline. So the VCFA came to me. I decided that I didn't want to just be the only voice talking about Black design history. Mm-hmm. So I invited Pierre and Silas to also give a lecture. So they call these micro lectures. So still had the same amount of time that I had to give my lecture, but instead of me talking for an hour, 45 minutes, we each had like 15 minutes to do like a micro lecture, a mini presentation about our specific research. Mm-hmm. So again, around that time, I met Dr. Cheryl Miller and she was just starting or had already started her her archive for Stanford uh-huh. Design History Archive. Yeah. And somebody gave her my name. And so I met with her about sending my work there. 
And something that I, I still feel weird about saying was that was my first time hearing about her and her work. But I'm, I'm glad I did. I'm glad that we had that opportunity to talk and connect. And now she's a huge mentor and influence, inspiration in my life. But that conversation with her sort of gave me a little focus. So I was like, oh, I'm really interested in like the history of Black women in graphic design too. So my lecture, my portion of the lecture was about that. So, you know, we're in the midst of the pandemic and Solis had this idea. And so we all talked about how, okay, this information needs to get out there. Like, I don't know if we have time to go through the process of writing a book and, and getting published and trying to, you know, do, you know, all the stuff that you have to go through as you, yeah, you're yeah. working on yourself. It's a huge timeline. Like you don't just do it overnight. Right. It takes a lot of time. Yeah. So, you know, Silas and his studio, that's how they sort of came up and they, they put together the Bob Pop design history classes with, went live January of, 2021. And so, you know, again, it wasn't the intent to have like the classes and that sort of happened first. I did, we, you know, we thought prior to, you know, the pandemic and whatnot that we would be working on a book first. So that happened. That was the success. And so then after the course, then we felt like, okay, like, okay, now we have to write this book now because we kind of already sort of have a structure. We have content, but little did we know, Maurice, that it was not that easy. <laughs> like, like, you know, these 12 classes. Okay, yeah, they are chapters in the book, but I don't know. It's just, you know, yeah, they're still like talking to people. There's still more research to be done. There's still more archives to visit. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just that simple to just sort of make that transition from the series of classes and then to make it into a book. So we're still in the process of writing now. We have a Hard, hard deadline <laughs> coming up on June 1st. Um, yeah, where we have to like really turn over like the manuscript. Yeah. Um, and we're all also collaborating on the design of the book too. So yeah, it's been an interesting process. And I think the thing that's, I know for me, and I think for my co-authors as well, the thing that's been most difficult is that it's a design history book, right? Yeah. But we're not approaching it like like a mags book in a way or like, you know, like this book came out a few years ago. It's called like Graphic Design Pioneers or Pioneers in Design, where it's sort of like for focus on individuals. Mm-hmm. So we do talk about individual designers and sort of their impact, but it's more about the diaspora. It's more about sort of the black experience in a way. Yeah. And 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 sort of what we had to sort of go through and deal with. It's more about like how we've been represented through visual culture and who's responsible for that and, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's not, it's not necessarily about a clothesline of designers, although we do talk about individual people because like you can't write a history book without sort of acknowledging, you know, individuals, but it's not just about highlighting people, I guess, in that way. It's more about the different movements that sort of happened in, throughout time and throughout history. And yeah, because I mean... It's been affected by it, right? Yeah, because you're, like you said, it's set up with, like, it's in the context of America during that time. And so there's been, you know, wars, there's been civil rights movements, there's been other sorts of radical movements. And so being able to talk about how Black design has been a through line with all of that in this country, we don't learn it in school 
in K through 12 schools. And based on what you're saying and probably from others, like it's probably not even something that's really readily learned in colleges. So like having a book like this is super important. I think not just to the design canon, but just like to American history in general, because everything that we go through in this country has been designed in some capacity. Like that that doesn't necessarily mean that it's been done, you know, with a pen and paper or in some visual aspect, but like, the the systems of oppression that are in this country and many other things that sort of hold people back or push others forward, these are designed constructs. And so being able to talk about black design in this country is uh is super important to I think informing that for a lot of people. So I'm excited to see the book when it comes out. Like congratulations to you. Cause I I know it's a lot. <laughs> it's I know <laughs> all too right? well. Yeah. I mean, I think writing a book is a challenge in and of itself, but I think history and I think we have a special challenge in the type of history that we're trying to bring to light because it hasn't been well documented or really right. available. So it's like a lot of things you have to do to sort of discover these stories, right? That's definitely been a challenge. I think one thing that I, I want to say I'm proud of about how we approach the writing in this book is that we sort of try to sort of do away with, like we're being ourselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we feel like using I, then we use I. If we want to like throw in a little, you know, snarky, something that maybe a long time ago would be unorthodox for like a history book. But we're just, throwing it and putting it all out there. We're not sort of concerned about like our voices being the same. And we like that our voices are fluid and they're sort of interchangeable. Like we collaborated and wrote the introduction together. And there are parts of it. It's like, I don't even remember what I wrote. And we do have our chapters that we all, you know, that the three of us have been responsible for. And we have contributors to certain chapters as well, but we're not sort of concerned with the more traditional approach to this type of book. We don't even call it even a textbook. Like we're not really approaching it in that same traditional way, I guess, Mm. if you will. Yeah. Uh, So you're teaching, you're running your own design studio, you are working on a book you're doing this research and, you know, your research focuses on, as we've talked about throughout this interview, black people being omitted from the graphic design history canon. Like, given all the different spaces that you occupy, designer, educator, et cetera, what does the path forward look like for you? I think about that a lot. I think it's going to continue in this realm of writing and publishing and designing. I think I like the idea of being a content generator and being the one to design that content. So I see more books around the same topic, but in different iterations. Mm -hmm. So for instance, I'm completely obsessed with Louise E. Jefferson. She's a Black woman who was one of the first art director in the publishing industry at Friendship Press. She started working in the the mid-late 1930s. And she was a designer, a calligrapher, a cartographer, an illustrator, a researcher. I mean, she was like a real true Renaissance woman. And she rubbed shoulders with all kinds of people during the Harlem Renaissance. 
but I've been doing research on her for a really long time. And so I envision, you know, writing and designing a book about Louise E. Jefferson. And uh, right now I've, I've been in touch with Friendship Press, where she um, worked at as an art director for 20 years. And they're interested in me having and me writing a book about uh, Louise and her work. Okay. So those type of projects I see still continuing. The past few years have been great. The writing, the lecturing have been amazing, meaning amazing people and have been great with giving me more opportunities to write and to research. But I would like to hopefully have more of a balance between that and my making. I mean, especially maybe even more so like personal projects. I really enjoy doing small collaborations with other designers, whether it be zines or just, you know, random creating compositions and, and, and giving files, you know, going back and forth between digital files and things like that. We're not really knowing what the outcome is. I think I just miss making and playing and having fun. Not that the design work that I do isn't enjoyable, but it's just a different type of making, I guess it's different, right? You know, you're doing research and you're writing that's a lot different than like, okay, I have this idea for making this thing using these materials or even this tool or this technology. You know, my making, I'm really interested in like this sort of synthesis and like analog and digital tools and how they sort of come together and how to kind of like expand our use tools in ways that they weren't actually meant um, mm-hmm. to be used. So I, I would like moving forward to be able to engage more in yeah, just being a maker and not thinking about what I'm making so much. Now, being a, a designer and an educator and all these things, like you talk now about sort of how you want your path to go forward. But in your current work, how do you balance like these different aspects? Do these do these different roles inform each other in some way? Yeah, I mean, I definitely see there is so much overlap. And for a long time, I actually didn't know how to bring all these things together, especially like in the classroom, because it took a while before I started teaching design history. And actually I'm not teaching it right now. I haven't taught it in like maybe three years, but I think that doesn't mean that I can't still bring that into the classroom. Right. So to me, it doesn't matter. I don't care that I'm not teaching design history, whatever I'm teaching, you're going to learn something about black design. Some kind of way I'm going to insert my agenda because I know that these are things that are important. It's not just black design history. I talk about queer history. You know, I talk about other areas of design where people are marginalized or we don't know a lot about, and I know a little something, I still try to impart that you know, mm-hmm. to my students. So I make sure that like, I'm trying to be equitable um, in that sense. But yeah, I'm just starting to see like where these roads and where these things are starting to overlap. So in my making now, I think about like, well, how could, you know, besides designing books about Black design history or whatever and the publishing aspect, but I start thinking about like, well, what are other things that you can make that sort of has to do with you know, your research. So I'm starting to think more about that, like timelines and things like that. So to me, the crossover is starting to happen. It's slow and maybe not as fast as I would have liked them to be. Mm-hmm. And then I see them in the projects that I give to my students too. So it sort of reverts back to the classroom in that way. So it all, I like that it all feeds into each other then. That's good. 
yeah, kind of makes less work for me in a way. As opposed <laughs> to try to <laughs> compartmentalize everything. So for a long time, everything used to be in these separate buckets, you know. Yeah. Black design studio, freelance, here's writing and lecturing, you know. But now they're just starting to morph together. And that has been good. And that's how I would like things to continue in the future. Hey, look, work smarter, not harder. I get it. (laughs) What advice would you give to someone out here that's hearing your story, that's hearing about all these different things that you're interested in, and they want to follow in your footsteps? What would you tell them? I would say learn how to be comfortable in your voice, in your skin, and how to... I didn't always feel comfortable being Tashika, being authentically me, because sometimes... I had moments where I didn't want to step on people's toes, but I noticed moments where I did do that and I was just kind of myself and just kind of put it out there. Those have been the best experiences. And I would say that, you know, we all have control. You have some kind of control over your path. And so if there is a certain direction that you want your practice or your craft or your skill or whatever it is you're into to take that you can kind of plan for, you know, talk to people who are doing the thing that you want to do, align yourself, reach out to them. I know sometimes we think, and we look at people that we admire and we put them on this pedestal, but if they're the right people, they'll talk to you and they, they're not full of themselves. And, and lots of times people are more than happy to sort of talk to you about your past. So, and this is especially to like younger designers, like don't be afraid to like reach out to people who you admire, you know, and yeah. have conversations with them about what they do and how they got to where they are. But yeah, I just say be bold, <laughs> be bold, just be bold and intentional about how you move through this world. I love that. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, what do you want the next chapter of your story to be? I do see myself still teaching. I do see myself still being at UT. And I'm hoping, my hope is that in five years, I have a couple of books under my belt by then. Maybe I'm just going to throw it out there, Maurice. I would say at least three of them because I have a list of projects that I'm really like, it's kind of like, these have to be done before I die. Now, maybe they don't have to be done in five years. That's pretty ambitious of me, but I'm already working on one. So I can get like the other two, like at least in the works. But at times that would be great. I do have sort of a passion project that I've been sitting on, sitting on for a while. I have a collection of drawings. Maybe it's like 200 and something drawings that I would like in five years to sort of have their own sort of brand where it's a a collection of whether it's greeting cards or home decor or apparel, not R, I should say and. So I've been procrastinating on this project for a really long time. And I hope in five years that that project sort of see the light of day. Well, just to, you know, wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you, about your work and everything? Where can they find that online? Um, I'm probably most active on Instagram and Facebook. So Facebook is Tashika Arsenal Sutton. On Instagram is Black Voice. I am on Twitter under Black Voice, but I am not that um, engaged with, with that platform as much. But I'm on there and I tweet every now and then. And I'm on LinkedIn, which is, you can find me under Tashika Arsenal Sutton. Again, that's not a platform that I'm super engaged in, but um, I'm there and I probably, you'll probably find me multiple times on the LinkedIn, but I'm there. <laughs> um, but Instagram, I would say it's probably the place 
to see me. I'm more active there. I would hate to throw out my crappy Adobe portfolio website that's just a bunch of stuff that's thrown on there right now, but <laughs> hey, why not? Blackvoicedesign.portfolio.com. That's just something that's there right now, just to have an online presence until I have time to do something else with it. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Tashika Arsenal Sutton, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on the show. You and your work have been on my radar for many years. I think probably since maybe since 2015 for a while now. And it wasn't until recently uh, I had spoken with Cheryl, had Cheryl on the show for 500th episode, and she sung your praises to the high heavens. And I was like, I feel like I reached out to her before. Let me... Let me reach out again just to see if she might might be yeah, interested. Actually, you did, Maurice. I thought about that. I was actually just telling my sister right before, and I was like, I feel weird because you did reach out to me a long time ago. And I think at the time, I was just like not ready. Yeah. Or something that had nothing to do with you at a show. I loved the show and listened to it. And I think that was just like, you know, I'm still in my boldness. I'm kind of shy, <laughs> too, and more of an introvert. So I think that... Yeah, it just took a while, but you you did. You did. Okay. So, but I'd like to reach back out again. Yeah, but I I mean, I also just want to say, you know, from hearing your story and hearing about everything that you're working on, like, I think it's it's evident that you have a passion for design. You have a passion for, honestly, getting the story right, whether it's through writing, through education, through your visual design work. I'm really excited to see and hear more from you in the future. I feel like you're one of our bright shining stars that are really going to help represent us as we move forward in this crazy world that we're in right now. I feel like the work that you're doing is really going to stand out and uh and help showcase what black designers are doing everywhere. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks again for having me, Maurice. Big, big thanks to Tashika Arsenal Sutton. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Tashika and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is supported by Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They are always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio located in Atlanta, Georgia. Our executive producer is Maurice Cherry and our editor and audio engineer is RJ Basilio. Intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are courtesy of Brevity and Wit. If you like this episode, please let us know. We're on social media. You can find us on Instagram or on Twitter. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you could follow us on Spotify. You could follow us on Amazon Music. You could also leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We haven't had one of those in a while. Or you could even leave us a voicemail on our hotline at 626-603-0310. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>